Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, Scott Young. He wrote a book that I interviewed him on a couple of years ago called Ultra Learning. Very, very interesting book. Scott, for many years, has been in the, I guess, I guess you can call it the accelerated learning or ultra learning camp. He got all the coursework done and all the testing and everything necessary to get uh, the equivalent of, I believe, a computer science degree from MIT coursework in one year instead of four and did it for like 99% less price than you would normally spend. And Scott's gone on to learn quantum mechanics, you know, just for fun, I guess, and Macedonian you know, with, his, uh, with his wife, that's her native language. And, you know, he's just all about learning. And he has a new course coming out called Life of Focus. Uh, it's the second version of the course. I took the first one. It was excellent. And uh, I wanted to have him back because I just think that he's uh, going into areas that serve anyone in any profession that wants to up their game. So I wanted to have him back. So Scott, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you so much for that warm introduction. Yeah, no problem. So tell me, um, I know the the Life of Focus course is with Cal Newport, Mm -hmm. who's also like very famous for being able to focus intensely and get things done. Um, What was, like, how did this, the thought for the course come about? Yeah. So, I mean, if anything, Cal Newport probably deserves more credit for being the kind of intellectual leader for this course, because his book, Deep Work, which um, I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of before, been a kind of a major bestseller phenomenon. And it was based on his observation and his days in the theory group at uh, MIT when he was doing his doctorate that these people were just incredibly good at focusing and noticing how technology and things have been shifting in the way that we work that have made that rarer at the same time that it's become more valuable. So our jobs are more demanding. They require more skill. That's something that I covered a lot in my book, Ultra Learning. And yet at the same time, you know, we're always on our phones. We're always distracted. Um, We have a hard time concentrating. And so this kind of double punch of being rare and valuable made it something that he wanted to write a book about. And clearly it's something that resonated with a lot of people because I I think, I don't know whether he sold over a million copies now, but it's, it's a considerable number. And wow. We had been friends for 10 years. We did another course together called Top Performer that was also sort of um, kind of inspired by one of his books, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And we were talking about doing a course about focus. You know, focus has been something that is very central to the way I think about things. Um, not only productivity, but also just focus in your life, focus in making sure that your free time is spent doing the things that you actually care about. You don't just feel like the day is wasted at the end. And so this was sort of something that we had been talking about for a number of years uh, and uh, finally came together in this course that we, um, yeah, we had held the first session uh, last year. And uh, as we're recording this, it depends on when you're listening to this, we're um, having the second session, but of course we're going to be having more sessions after that. So People, of course, if they want to okay. check it out, know what I'm talking about and go to um, life-of-focus-course.com so, or just go to my or Cal's website and there'll be links. Yeah, and an idea came to me. Are there such things as like focused therapists, you know, someone you can go to or do a telesession with where for a half hour, an hour, they 
literally go through a focused activity with you and kind of like train you to focus better when you're doing your other stuff? Well, so I think I want to separate two different ideas of what we mean by focus. So one of the things that you're talking about, about ability to concentrate on a particular task, uh, seems related to, you know, therapists often deal with more extreme cases. So people who have attentional disorders or things like that, they'll often work on cognitive or even sometimes pharmaceutical treatments to help people in those cases. And so there's a whole, you know, set of research and ideas about that. That's not really so much what I'm focused on with Cal. Um, and then you can think of the opposite spectrum of things, which is not so much about focusing on a particular task, but about kind of a broader sense of focus on, you know, making sure you're putting your effort towards the right goals and that you're working on the right kinds of projects that actually matter in the long term. And so there's obviously lots of kind of life coaches and stuff that help with that, but maybe they're not helping as much on the task level. Like they're not, you know, sitting there with a stopwatch guiding you. And so the, the way that we want to focus on uh, focus uh, in, in this course and what our sort of approach is, is somewhere between those two extremes. So it's not so much a question of, okay, how can you, you know, all right, you know, move your eyes here and move your pen there and, and optimize those tasks because most of our working tasks are different and to concentrate on it, you have to be thinking and doing. So that kind of self-monitoring makes it very difficult. However, there is a level of, you know, recognizing that, okay, well, if you're being interrupted by your coworker every five minutes, or if your phone is buzzing, and then you're looking at it, and then you can't remember where you were with your task, these are things that need to be fixed. So I try to approach it from this environmental perspective of looking at the things that you encounter every single day that either keep you on focus or distract you. And so it's a little bit bigger than just, you know, again, watching over your shoulder while you're working and making sure that, you know, you don't lose concentration for half a second. Um, but it's also, I think, a little bit more um, specific than just the life coach who's going to tell you what goals you ought to set and just assume that you're actually putting in the work um, consistently on them. Well, I've already learned something. So there's the two critical elements, the ability to focus and the environment necessary to support focus and then focusing on the right things that will actually make an impact for you in the way that you want. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I, I think you can you kind of view it from this level that uh, this is even one of the things we talk about in the course, that there's sort of this big picture focus, you know, like what are the goals for my life? Um, but then there's a very kind of microscopic focus, which is, you know, in the activities I did today, did I do them while I was like fully engaged in them? Or was I multitasking and getting distracted and procrastinating and all that kind of stuff. So you need both elements, I think, to to be successful. And I think you need them to have a kind of satisfying life. Um, and this life of focus is it, it does sort of hybridize those concepts somewhat. What's feedback from people that have taken, you know, this course, or that have read Cal Newport stuff, like, I'm sure you've seen a lot of it. What's What are some common elements and feedback after people go through a course like this? Yeah, so we got a lot of really great feedback from the course. One of the things that um, kind of always strikes me just because, you know, we have this assumption that we're kind of mostly rational kind of beings that, you know, well, if there was a better way to do it, we'd just be doing it already kind of um attitude that we take towards things but it was imp impressive to me how many people said oh yeah my life is just way better now that I'm focusing on these things which kind of begs that question like why wasn't I always doing that and I think the sort of conclusion that I've come to having seen participants and, and really having gone through the material myself and applied it is that 
often there's these sort of subtle design choices in the way we interact, particularly with technology, because technology has been made increasingly good at capturing our attention, but even ordinary activities that creates friction sometimes for the things that we want to do, as well as kind of these easy default alternatives that aren't really what we value, but we end up doing them out of habit or just because it's a little bit less effortful in the short term. And this landscape of choices that we make every day, both in our work and our personal life, has such a strong influence on us that if we can adjust that landscape, if we can adjust it so that okay, we're putting in a little bit more time on the projects we care about in our work, or we're spending a little bit less time on our phone or segregating that time so that it's not, you know, overflowing the kind of other moments that we would like to have with our family or with our hobbies or with other kinds of projects that we can make a lot more progress. And so uh, that was sort of maybe one of the surprising things for me is that it's not just a case of, well, you can do this thing, but it's going to be really, really hard. But often if you make the right design choices, um, it's, it's not even that difficult to sustain. It's just something that, you know, you have to do that upfront work of, of changing the environment. Yeah, what are some of the conceptions or misconceptions people have coming into a course like this or first encountering your cow's material? You know, like if you listen, what, what are they telling you that's like, hmm, that's a, I didn't realize they're coming in with that thought pattern or that, you know, that idea. Yeah, so I, I, I think that people have a range of different ideas. One thing that I think is particularly powerful is that there is an idea of um, and this is sort of one of the things that Cal is kind of against is this idea of detoxing, which is, you know, people do this all the time. Like, okay, I'm going to get off Facebook or I'm going to get off Twitter or something for a short period of time, you know, fully intending to go back on uh, and just as I'm going to be doing it in the future. And the problem with this sort of detox approach to focus, and you can see this in your work too. People do the same thing where they're like, okay, I'm going to like really buckle down and be productive. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Is that you're not addressing the underlying systems. So you're just doing something for a short period of time, knowing full well that it's not going to last or in the back of your head thinking, okay, well, I'm going to you know just take a little breather. But you're not changing any of the fundamental habits or, or patterns in which you interact with things. And so once the, you know, detox is over, things go back completely to normal and you put in all this effort, but there was no real lasting change. And so I think the mindset that we want to inculcate with people is, okay, if you're going to take a step away from it, use that to redesign the system so that when you come back, you can kind of get what you want out of it without having to also pay all these distraction costs. So if you're deciding, okay, I'm going to work in a different way, how can you make that sustainable? How can you, you know, negotiate that with your colleagues or your boss so that it's not just, okay, I'm in a cave and everyone's hating on me because I'm not replying to my emails for a few weeks, but then back, back to normal. 
at the end of the month. And similarly with your digital device usage, if you're going to take a, you know, brief leave from Facebook, well, if you do want Facebook in your life, how can you have a little bit of it and not have it totally overrun your day? So you're just scrolling your feed nonstop. Yeah. So what's an example of uh, small systems that people have used successfully or ones that you've come up with? Yeah, so there's lots and lots of different kinds you can do. I, I like, uh, ironically, sometimes the best way to fix technical problems is with more technology. And so if you are using something like Facebook and you decide, okay, well, I don't want to just stop using it entirely. I've got friends on there I want to keep up with. I use it for messaging. There's a lot of things you can do. You can get rid of it on your phone. And so you have to use it on your computer, which immediately just gets rid of that impulse checking. You can use apps like the Facebook uh, newsfeed blocker, which allows you to use the website, but blocks that kind of algorithmic newsfeed, the thing that you want to scroll nonstop. So you can have kind of more limited functionality. And you can use things like leech block and app blocker which will make it so you can only access it at certain times. This is one of the things that I've been a real champion of that often our impulses to do things, like we we have an impulse to get distracted or, or to engage in something, are very contextually specific. So you feel like checking your phone because this is the kind of moment where you check your phone. You know, maybe you're sitting on the bus or you're in line somewhere. And that's just when you would do that. And so the problem is that if these impulses to check something to get distracted happen in lots of different contexts throughout the day, then it's very easy for that to just always be an option and to always have to fight that distraction. But if you selectively limit it, so it's sort of like, okay, well, I only check my social media feeds at, you know, 5pm or something, uh, because I need to do it for work, but I only do it at that time, then at 11am, it just doesn't occur to you to check it. It's just not one of the things in your habitual repertoire. Now, I mean, it it takes a little bit of time to reshift these habit patterns. So I don't, I don't want to make the claim that this happens immediately. But if you can redesign this system so that you only have this limited set of contextual cues that are triggering the behavior, then you have a lot more control over it because you can prevent it from overrunning your day into all sorts of areas. And so this is just this kind of system design approach that I think can make a big difference. What about time of day? You know, some people say, oh, they're fresh in the morning or, Mm -hmm. you know, they they wake up late at night and they're, you know, they're they're creative at night. I mean, when people go through this course, how much of a self-assessment is involved in, you know, naturally, what are your rhythms and how do you build systems incorporating your natural rhythms so it's not as disruptive? Well, I think, you know, what you mentioned is totally valid that some people find that they get their most focused work done at certain hours of the day. I'm certainly the kind of person that from morning until lunch is like when I'm best at doing deep work. If I'm starting some task at 3 p.m., it, it's going to be a lot harder for me to make traction on it. Um, and of course, there's people who are the opposite. You know, I think uh, Tim Ferriss sort of famously wrote the four hour work week, like starting at 11 p.m. until like 4 a.m. or something was when he was doing doing his writing. So clearly not all people are the same there. And you do need to have a little bit of a, of a bit of self-awareness to, to figure out when your ideal rhythms are. But we actually focus on it from a much simpler point of view. Are you just tracking how often you're putting concentrated work in? Are you putting in this deep work? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so This is one of those things that we have this idea in our head of how much deep work we're doing, and it's often wildly disconnected with the reality. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay, well, I'm at the office for eight hours a day or nine hours a day, so I'm putting in 45 hours a week. Um, yeah, probably about half of that time I'm doing, you know, the deep work I should be doing. And so, you know, that's probably about 20 hours. But if you were actually to use the 
methods we are talking about for tracking, maybe you find out, oh, there's actually only about eight hours or maybe 12 hours. And this is very important realization because once you get this information, this feedback, then you can start, okay, making adjustments and seeing, okay, well, how do I have to organize my schedule to get this important work in? When do I, I mean, so how do people trip up and where and when do they trip up? Have you identified, you know, certain milestones or places in the course that uh, people got stuck last time? Well, I mean, I think everyone is a unique situation. And so they trip up for different reasons. Um, One of the things that I think can trip some people up is when there is a certain intrinsic chaoticness to their life or to their work that can't be completely eliminated. And so this can be something that people struggle with because if they have this vision that, well, what I really want is to be in like the log cabin in the wilderness, but They have a job where they can't say no to their boss and they have kids and maybe they're working at home because we're in a pandemic and they have, you know, uh, school work for their kids that comes up and they have to interrupt everything. These are things that you can't always control. And so I want to be kind of clear that I think the right way to approach this is not that, okay, well, if it can't be perfect, that it's not worth doing at all, but to recognize that even if you have some sort of uncontrollable amount of distraction that's going to creep in, you can still do what you can to minimize its impact on what you're doing. And so we we try to really talk about systems to work around that. But I think that's one of the things that people sometimes struggle with is they have some vision of, yeah, being in the log cabin, and then they see their reality. And it's so far from that, that they, they somewhat feel a bit daunted getting started, uh, just because it seems, you know, so night and day. Do you talk about time parameters like, you know, Pomodoro's being 40 minutes? Uh, like what, what is the actual yeah. focus events look like? What's the name that you guys give to them? If any, you know, what, what are some of the parameters? So Pomodoro's are really popular. I myself and Cal don't use them. And in the course, the way that I, I recommend is it, you know, it's, it's up to you. If you want to use them, that's fine. Uh, all we say is that if you're going to take a break, so usually it's like 20, 25 minutes, and then you take the five minute break that that five minute break better not be like some other distraction because we're trying to get longer chunks of time. So the kind of ideal for me is that people are putting in 60 minutes, 90 minutes, maybe even a couple hours, especially for some types of work. Those are kind of the ideal length. And this does vary from workplace to workplace. So for some people, you know, a 20 minute chunk is pretty good because that's the kind of length of their tasks. So the Pomodoro fits pretty well. But there's other kinds of work if you're doing research or you're, you know, writing some programming code or or things like this, where, you know, it may take you 40 minutes just to figure out where you are and what, okay, what is needs to be done next, because you're just trying to untangle the problem. And so if you were to get that ding and to take a break at that moment, you might totally wreck your progress. So our point isn't to be too prescriptive in saying this is exactly how you should work, but rather to focus on the opposite problem that if you are not measuring when you're putting in undistracted work and you're not keeping track of that, it's very difficult to know when you're making any progress at all. And so the task that we get people to do in the first month is to maintain a deep work tally where you're keeping a tally of how many sort of uninterrupted chunks you get of deep work throughout the day. So the the typical way that I do this is uh, when I decide I'm going to do some deep work, I just have a little notepad file and I just jot down the time. And then I just go until either the task is complete, I want to take a break or you know, there is some interruption that I engage in. And then I note the ending time. And if the ta- chunk is too small, so we, we recommend over half an hour is the minimum length. But if the chunk is too small, don't count it. And if the chunk, you, you add up all the chunks at the end of the day, and that gives you your 
sort of deep work total. And this is good because when you're in this intention to work deeply, you become kind of hyper aware of distractions because normally if you're working in like, oh yeah, I got to check this email and you start looking at other emails, you might not even notice it. But when you wrote down, okay, I'm in deep work mode right now, you become kind of sensitized to when you might be getting distracted. And so even just the act of measuring it um, can have a, a big impact on your behavior. But definitely looking at those tallies day after day, week after week, gives you this sense of, okay, what needs to change in order for me to hit the ratio that I've decided is ideal for my work? How much deep work a day is a lot. Like, you know, for a person that hasn't mm-hmm. gone through your course and just does what they do, typically, yeah. you know, I've heard stories like, I don't know, executives work the equivalent of like 45 minutes a day in an eight hour shift. But, you know, what do you observe that, how much, how much uh, focused work is someone doing on average? I know everyone's different, but after your course, yeah. what's, what's the goal and what do they get to? So this is really job specific. And so we actually talk about figuring out, you know, what the ratio should be for different jobs. And so just to give an example, we have people that are students in the course. And so let's say, you know, you're a physics student. And you don't have any emails, you don't have a boss, you don't have meetings to attend, uh, you have your classes and you have your homework. And so if for this person, the closer you can get to 100% deep work, the better, right, in terms of how much time you actually spend studying, because all the shallow work can basically be eliminated pretty safely. There's not a lot of that stuff going on. In contrast, you can think about a professional who their entire day is cut into 15-minute chunks. So you can think of an ER nurse, for instance, and she would be someone who is just constantly jumping around from task to task to task to task. And so for this person, deep work might fill a more specific role. So it would be about training and thinking, but it might only be something that they're doing you know, 10% of their work week. It's not something that fills the majority of the day. So this just shows how big a range there are among different tasks. And yet there is a commonality in that often the deep work, even for the people who are not doing so much of it, is where you get breakthroughs, where you're able to make progress in your career. So I think, you know, you mentioned about executives being really busy. And I was just recently rereading Peter Drucker's great book, The Effective Executive. And it's very interesting to me that he kind of describes not in those words but he describes basically the concept of deep work for the executive so this is something that he would have recognized interviewing and talking to many many high up executive ceos and and whatnot he would have recognized that oh yeah well there's lots of meetings and lots of coordination but he found that even in those cases the deep work is what's really important if you have to make a personnel decision well you can't really make that over five minutes maybe you have to sit and talk with this person for an hour in order to figure out you know what they should be doing Or if you have to draft some kind of report or business plan, well, you actually have to sit down for a couple hours and think about it. You can't just do it in two minutes. And so deep work is important for all different professions, but obviously there's other constraints that make it so that for some people, it's more like 100%. For some people, it's more like 10%. For my own work, I find it's about 50% because, you know, I have a lot of emails. I have a lot of other stuff that I have to do as well in, in managing a business. But if it slips much below 50%, I'm not getting that much writing done. I'm not doing the things that people actually value from me. What do you do about people that are fidgeters or people that physically, unless they have a super comfortable chair or uh, they're just uncomfortable physically sitting down to work? You know, some people, I don't know, maybe need to stand or I'm kind of one of those people like physically, if I'm not in a comfortable chair and if I don't have the right lighting and things like that, it just, it makes it a lot harder for me to work. And instead of just saying to myself, I'm a sissy, you know, 
What can I do? Or people that fidget, mm-hmm. what can they do to, you know, they have these physical issues. What do they do to, to deep work? That's a really, I'm really glad you raised that point because what deep work is, is not sitting motionless in a chair for four hours. It's fine to move around. Um, and I think often it's good to move around. It's good to kind of keep your energy levels up. And, you know, Cal even talks about, he's often changing locations when he's working. And because a lot of his work is sort of more in the heady realm of just thinking through ideas, he'll often do his deep work when he's out on a walk, uh, thinking through some sort of computer science problem or, or some book idea or something like that. And so I think the important idea to stress here is that when we're talking about concentration, keeping your mind on a particular problem is what we're trying to do. But very often moving around, if you, especially if you feel like you're a little bit fidgety or you don't like sitting in a chair, that's often really good. Nothing's worse for your concentration than, oh, I've got this really bad back pain, but I've got to stay in this chair for another hour and a half. And so, you know, we don't talk a lot about you know, whether you should be sitting on an exercise ball or using a standing desk, we leave that to the discretion of the students. But I think keeping that disconnect between keeping mental focus and keeping yourself physically stationary, I think those are two separate ideas. And so, you know, for me, I, I tend to be fairly comfortable and, and I can work for a period of time without moving, but I don't think that that's necessarily something to aspire toward. I think that being able to move around a little bit and even change your kind of outside context while you keep yourself uh, thinking about the problem you're trying to work on or the work you're trying to do uh, can be really valuable. Yeah, I know for myself, I'm very auditory. So sometimes if I have to drive somewhere, that's when I can do a lot of great thinking. Or if I go on a walk or sitting there, yeah, it's just, it's very hard for me, at least personally, just sit there and think. And I mean, I don't know, are there other quirks you've seen about people? Like, for instance, I tend to do better talking to someone and thinking by talking and discussing it with people. You know, well, I'm, I'm picturing, yeah, again, the finger like Rodin sitting there and just <laughs> thinking to themselves, you know, like what, what's the reality of it? No, but that's another, that's another good point. Uh, what makes something deep work again, is we're talking about this kind of continuous or nearly continuous kind of concentration on a particular task. And I mean, obviously your mind will occasionally wander and, and, and sometimes even mind wandering can be good, especially for creative problem solving. What we're trying to avoid is the, ah, this is too difficult. Let me open my phone or check my email or, or, or just do something else to get me out of that kind of difficult um, strain. But deep work with other people can also happen. So if you're sitting down and you're brainstorming with someone to come up with some business plan, that can be deep work. So we're not trying to just eliminate all collaborative work or label all collaborative work as being shallow. Um, because the idea here is that we want to be having, you know, that those kinds of tasks that really need an hour, an hour and a half to work on. Those are the ones that often get pushed aside, or they get kind of run over roughshod and they're not really done properly. That's what we're trying to work on here. So I think it's important to keep that perspective in mind that, um, you know, very often our important deep work is collaborative. And Cal says that the work he does advising grad students or when he's teaching his class, he, he counts those in his tally because these are things that require his concentration and focus and they're about a continuous idea as opposed to, you know, just, well, that involves another person, so I'm not going to count that. Is doing this like working out, is it like a muscle that you have to train and you'll be sore, mm-hmm. but then it gets better and it gets stronger or what's it like? So this is a really, this is a kind of nuanced, complicated question. So I'll try to give a, an appropriate answer. So there is a certain sense, I think, in which this is something that gets easier with practice. And I think it gets easier with, with practice in part because you develop little tricks for handling 
the things that come up. So one of the things we first get students to do is to sort of negotiate this sort of new working rhythm in their environment. Because often we work in kind of toxic environments where, you know, people just interrupt you willingly. It's very distracting. And this is just what everyone expects, this sort of low level noise of constant distraction. So it can be a little bit of a while to shift into that. And even if you can't unilaterally change your working environment, it can take a little while to figure out, well, what's the appropriate response? How should I handle these things? And so in this way, I think as you get used to doing deep work, it will get easier. It'll get more comfortable. Um, is focus like a muscle is a kind of a different question. And I think at the sort of neurological level, it's probably the case that as you get better at focusing on particular tasks, you will get better at focusing on them. But I'm not as confident that in there's some really general capacity for improving focus. And so this is one of my kind of critiques of people who take the approach of, well, I'm just going to do a lot of meditating, and then that's going to make me really focused throughout the day. Maybe, but there's a lot of research, um, you know, one of the things I covered in my, my book, Ultra Learning on transfer that shows that, well, we shouldn't probably expect this kind of facultative transfer between uh, highly different tasks. And so I think there's probably some benefit if you're writing every day, you can get better at focusing on, on writing. But I think the ability to just do some unrelated focusing task and that that's going to improve your focus muscles like you're at the gym so that you'll be able to focus on unrelated work tasks that I would be more skeptical of. Well, what do you do if you've decided, you know, I'm going to focus on X for 60 minutes. And again, halfway through, you're just really resisting it. You're tired. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to, you're cranky. You're, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. how do you diagnose what the problem is and fix it for future? One of the suggestions that I have, and this happens frequently, I think this is, <laughs> Cal has a lesson we, we have in the course where he talks about, um, I think the title is Inspiration is for Amateurs. And it was one of the more popular lessons where he's basically saying, you know, this feeling you have when you're writing and you have writer's block and you're not feeling it, that's what writing is. It's the opposite feeling where it's just flowing and coming naturally. That's the that's sort of just a lucky thing that happens sometimes. What writing really is, is writer's block. And I thought that was a unique and useful perspective because we often feel like, oh, well, the work should just come easily. And if it's kind of difficult, that means it's not, you know, I'm, I'm doing something wrong rather than that's what the work is, is, is working through that. And one of the suggestions I have, and this is a sort of a way of dealing with this, is that whenever you get stuck with your work, I, I try to look at shifting to what I call the meta task. So let's say I'm, um, I'm writing an essay and I, I'm, I'm stuck. I can't write something. And so shifting to the meta task would mean, okay, well, why don't I write about why I'm stuck or what I would, you know, what I want to write, but is not sort of coming out. And so this idea that when you get stuck with a problem, you shift to writing or thinking about, well, why am I stuck or why am I resisting this or why am I procrastinating um, is often very helpful because this itself allows you to kind of step away from the problem and diagnose it. So this can also be really good if you're a student and you're studying and you know you can't get the answers right to any of the problems. You just sort of, okay, let's open a piece of paper. Like, why am I not getting the answers right? You know, And then you lead to like, well, I don't really actually understand this concept. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I need to shift and go back and understand that concept before I can move forward. Or I might be writing something and I can't make any progress and I say, well, why am I really resisting this? And it's like, well, I'm really resisting this because I'm actually ambivalent about whether I agree with what I'm writing about. And now I'm kind of fighting internally. Oh, okay. Well, why don't, why don't we just, instead of trying to write the essay, figure out whether or not I agree with this um, statement. And so this idea of shifting to the meta task is something that applies to lots of different jobs that you can do it when you get stuck in some kind of deep work situation. 
is you start writing or thinking about why you're stuck or why you're resisting it. And very often you kind of go in interesting directions and that can suggest new ways to approach the task. You know, when people start doing this, this focused work, mm -hmm. what kind of review should they do in their mind or on paper or how, you know, like how should they track it? And I mean, should they? And how does that help people if they do? Yeah. So we, we recommend keeping track of the deep work hours. So I kind of briefly described it before, but basically just whenever you set the intention to do deep work, it's okay if you forgot to uh, jot down the time, you can kind of look back, but jot down the starting time. So, you know, if I'm right now, I'm looking at the clock, it says uh, 12 or 6 p.m. So if, if we weren't in this call and I was deciding, okay, I'm going to start writing an essay, I would, I would jot down on there 12 or 6 p.m. And then you work for however long you're, you were going to work. And when you get distracted or interrupted, if it's just a very short interruption that was not your control, so a colleague came in and wanted to ask a question, if it's short, if it's less than five minutes, you can just ignore it. But if you initiated an interruption, so you go and check YouTube or Facebook or something like that, then you just you know note the ending time. Or you finish the task and you decide, okay, I'm taking a break. I'm not doing this anymore. You note the ending time. And then you just add up the length of these chunks, again, discarding the chunks that are um, too short. And at the end of the day, you'll have some number and you can also have a number for the week. And so I think the weekly deep work total is very important to track because this is, it kind of smooths out the random fluctuations from day to day. Oh, I had a dentist appointment or I was sick that day or this kind of thing. And it gives you a sort of sense of, okay, well, what am I actually getting on average and why, you know, uh, this is something that it can often be, you can be getting lots of deep work done because you have this really good project to work on. And then maybe that project dries up and all of a sudden you're doing only like a 10th of the deep work you were doing before. These are good ways of kind of keeping the feeling the pulse on, on your professional life and feeling the pulse on the, the projects that matter to you. So again, what kind of feedback have you gotten from people that surprised you, that, that told you something that you didn't consider or contemplate before? Mm. Well, I, as I said, I already mentioned kind of the idea that, you know, people being like, why didn't I do this before? Another thing that surprised me, which was uh, in the lesson series for this, I kind of asked people to paint me kind of a vision of what their vision of the focus life was. And when we had been designing the course, I had kind of had this sort of pluralistic view that, well, everyone's going to decide something a little different, right? Like that there, you know, there's going to be the film buff that really wants to watch movies. And there's going to be the painter who wants to spend time painting. And th there's going to be all these sorts of different things. And one of the things that really struck me was actually how similar <laughs> the things that people want to stop doing were all the same. And the things that they want to do, do. I mean, obviously people have different hobbies and, and things like that, which are slightly different, but the general categories were all the same. You want to have more time for sort of purposeful, interesting hobbies, time for your family, time for contemplation, reflection, and you want to have less time on television and social media and on your phone. Like that was every single person was saying that. So I think that universality of it kind of surprised me a little bit because I'd imagine, well, you know, different people are going to like different things. Like I really like reading books, but maybe not everyone likes reading books. And yet that was something that showed up consistently. So I think there's definitely something to that, that there is something kind of uniquely appealing and maybe even habit forming about a lot of the things that we spend too much time on. What about for kids, for teenagers, have any of them taken this course or have parents, you know, had their kids do this stuff and does it work or are they a tough bunch to to focus? 
Well, I haven't worked that much with teenagers. Obviously, the way the course has been developed, we kind of aim it at people who are already in their working lives. The first part is about focused work, of course. Um, of course, it can also apply to focused studies. So if, uh, if you are a student and you want to work in the course, uh, it would work as well. I think the thing that often happens with teenagers um, is that the impetus for this is coming from the parents like they see their kids on the phone all the time and doing this and that and they're like okay well you need to be doing this and I think that often backfires and I think it backfires because it comes from a very kind of controlling mindset whereas the way I want to view it is ask the person what they would like to be spending their time on you know, you know, become a tool for this person to make their own focus life. And I think this is something that can apply to everyone. And this is something that I, I also believe in, in, in learning too, is instead of being like, okay, let's force this person to learn this thing that they have no interest in, you know, ask them what they're interested in learning, what they're interested in being good at. And so similarly, I think if you take the perspective of, okay, well, how can I help my son or daughter or my friend or, or someone, this young person, how can I figure out, well, what would they like to be spending their time on? And how can I give them some sort of nudges and suggestions to help them do the things they actually care about? I think that that's more productive. And so that's always how I try to frame my advice is this should be something that is enthusiastically adopted by the person it's being applied toward, as opposed to maybe a kind of more paternalistic attitude where how do we control people because I don't like how they're behaving, but it's not about how I'm behaving. Mm, makes sense here. And then what about um, auditory kinesthetic or visual learners? I don't know if you make those divisions, but mm -hmm. what are the different learning styles that you found? How do they react to this? And what kind of tweaks do they need to make it work for them? Well, I think the idea of the focus course here is not specific about learning. So learning styles, I think there's some, you know, there's some debate about that. But I think the idea is that we all have sort of our own unique sort of preconditions, our own unique situations. So for some people, for instance, one of the things that does strongly impact focus is your working memory capacity. So this has been something that's been studied um, by cognitive psychologists, and they find that if you have a somewhat shorter working memory capacity, it becomes much harder to tune out distractions. So it becomes much harder to, you know, work in a noisy coffee shop. And what they find is that, you know, if you're looking at someone and saying, okay, I can do deep work in a noisy coffee shop. And someone's like, there's no way I can't get anything done. I'm, I'm getting distracted by people's conversations around me. That might be idiosyncratic. That might be something that you know, you might have to do something a little differently than your friend who maybe has a slightly larger working memory capacity. Another example of a cognitive difference that can impact focus is age. So I did a little article where I reviewed some of the research on age and learning, uh, but this also applies to age and focusing. And one of the things they find is that there is a prominent theory of how we age is that our frontal, prefrontal cortex cortical areas sort of age a bit more rapidly than some of the other parts. And what this means is that we have a little bit harder time kind of forcing our attention in tasks in particular ways. So one of the ways they measure this is they will have a game where you play, where you have to do something with a particular rule and you keep doing it repeatedly. And then they'll switch the rules in the middle and you have to apply the new rule. And what they find is that older people tend to stick to the old rule accidentally a little bit more because they have a harder time overriding that habit that they had built up from before. And so what I think this means is if, if you are older, if you are, you know, someone who you feel like you have a bit of brain fog is that you have to just be more concerted in your environment. So you have to control those distractions more. You have to get the noise canceling headphones. You have to talk to people and say, hey, don't distract me because I'm going to have a much harder time 
resuming my place in my work. And so I think these challenges are real. And I think these are things that you have to keep in mind. But at the same time, I think if you're aware that this is sort of your challenge and your difficulty, then it becomes all the more important to invest in focus saving measures. Because if you're, you know, super smart, 20 year old kid with a huge working memory capacity, yeah, maybe you can have the TV on in the background and still manage to ace your exam, much to the consternation of your aging parents. But for most people, that's not going to work. Should people combine focus with learning or should, you know, if I do Mm -hmm. a bunch of deep work in a week, should I also say, Hmm, I learned a lot of stuff or should I keep the two separate in my mind? Is it, you know, if I, if I consider something work, it's work, but if I consider (laughs) I'm going to learn something too and work, then I probably feel better about it. So, okay. So there's two, two points there. One, I think, uh, I think a lot of good learning is focused. So in many ways, these concepts uh, directly overlap. I mean, I wouldn't say all deep work is necessarily learning. You can, you might still need to do a task that you already know how to do, and it might require concentration and depth, and it might not be the same as learning new facts or skills. But generally, if you're learning new facts and skills, you're usually focusing. It's, it's, that's one of the things I brought up in my book. It's very difficult to learn while you are multitasking or doing a bunch of other things. However, I think one of the other points you brought up, which I think is very important, is just how do you label things? And so this is something that you kind of have to make your own decision about. But I think that often it can make sense to include growth activities, things that help you learn about your profession, help you do research, reading a book in your deep work totals, just because they are things that are helping you make progress, even if it's maybe not some task that you've been assigned or it's actually moving you forward in a, in a particular project. So for me, for instance, when I'm doing research, I count that as, as deep work for, for my working life, even if it's not necessarily, you know, something that I immediately need to do to move forward a task. So I think it's important to kind of have that open-minded view. Again, at the same time, though, you could also take the perspective of, okay, well, I'm doing, you know, casino research for my poker hobby in the middle of my working day. And while that's probably not going to help you unless you're a professional poker player, that's an example of something where, okay, maybe I'll just include that as a hobby and keep that to the side. So you do have to make that distinction yourself. Does mindfulness come into play? Is that a label for some of this or is it separate again? Yeah, mindfulness is very interesting to me. I think that there's a lot that overlaps with mindfulness. So I mentioned kind of this shifting to the meta task. And so when you're shifting to the meta task, that itself is a kind of mindfulness because you have to be cognizant that I'm stuck right now or I'm frustrated or I'm having resistance. And you have to be cognizant of it enough to kind of separate yourself from that and say, okay, why? Why am I doing that? And and kind of look at it from outside yourself. And so mindfulness has that sort of aspect that when you are experiencing things, in order to be mindful of it, you have to be kind of aware that you're experiencing things as opposed to just experiencing it. So it has a certain self-consciousness to it. On the other hand, though, I do think there are tasks that you kind of can't be mindful in that way, that you have to be kind of absorbed in the task um, and thinking about the needs of the task rather than sort of sitting outside of it and sort of contemplating that. So I I think that, you know, a full taxonomy of mindfulness, especially because when people use mindfulness, they use it in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, maybe I'm not using it in the way that you would. So, you know, for you being in a flow state or in the zone 
is being mindful, although from the kind of definition of being aware that you are doing something like this is kind of the opposite of a flow state. So there's a lot of subtle nuances there, but I think there is overlap. I, 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 we don't spend a lot of time talking about mindfulness or meditation in the course, but I have done meditation retreats and I've spent a lot of time reading about mindfulness and meditation and stuff. And so I think there's a lot of interesting ideas there. So there's definitely some parallels. Yeah, and you brought up flow. Do mm-hmm. people report experiencing flow? They even know about it by doing more of yeah. this uh, deep work? So I think flow can be a great state. I think that it's good to be in a flow state. I think we always like being in a flow state versus being frustrated. Um, one of the ideas that Cal has sort of repeatedly advocated, though, is not getting too hung up on being flow because often the deep work you need to do is kind of inherently frustrating. So his example of like, yeah, it's great to write when you're in a flow state, but actually writing is mostly having writer's block. It's mostly not being sure what you want to write and having to think about it (laughs) and do that. And so I think kind of ironically, the way you get into a flow state more often is not getting too hung up about it. So if you sort of make, oh, I need to be in a flow state, a precondition of you doing deep work and like, oh, this session isn't working out. I'm not in a flow state. I don't think you're going to get that much done. And importantly, you're going to shy away from where you have to push through some frustration in order to reach that flow state. So my own perspective is that I think flow can be great. I think that obviously if we are have a lot of flow state in our work, it's more enjoyable. But if we don't fixate on it, if we focus on, okay, well, this is the you know deep work that I have to do that's important. And if it's a bit frustrating at first, it's going to be a bit frustrating. And you sort of accept that, then I think it's a lot easier to kind of ironically to move past those frustrations and into the flow states that, that come. Well, very good. What's the best way then for people to find out about the course? Where can they go? And you know, has it, when does it start? When's it going to repeat, et cetera? Sure. So the best thing to do is to go to my website, uh, scotthyoung.com. You can see there's a products page. We have Life of Focus listed there. Alternatively, you can go right to the website itself, which is life-of-focus-course.com. I know that's a little bit of a mouthful, but think of lifeoffocuscourse.com with hyphen between the words. And that will go to the page. If we're not currently, like if you're listening to this and we've already closed registration for the session that's uh, currently happening as I, I speak, then it will be a waiting list sign-up page. And if you sign up for that waiting list, we'll give you a few little lessons uh, for free. And it is the best way to find out about the course because Cal and I usually only advertise sessions for the course uh, once a year, but we offer slots a little bit more often for people on the waiting list because they've specifically requested to find out about the course. So we're hopefully going to have another session maybe sometime in the summer, but it depends on Cal's schedule. So don't don't hold me to that. Things move around a little bit. And, and I don't know if either of you offer um, one-on-one work in this area or if you have any coaches that do, but Mm-hmm. Well, we don't offer one-on-one coaching in the course, but we have a really good system of community feedback. So basically, if you respond to write any comments or questions about difficulties you have, I get like a little announcement about those. And I'm very frequently replying to people in the comments. So I think this often works better because if you can really think about, well, what is the problem that I'm facing and articulate it, then you're almost halfway to solving it. And then you can just get a little bit of help from someone like myself to kind of nudge you over the edge. Whereas I found in, in coaching situations where you want the coach to do um, everything for you, it's often a bit harder to make progress. So I think in some courses like these where you can get feedback when you need it, um, but you have to kind of be a little bit more autonomous there, you, you end up making more progress. Well, very good, Scott. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for coming on and you know talking about the course. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.